The Rootsland Podcast. Stories that are music to your ears. So many girls love them madly, crave them badly. The only thing that's sad is so many girls can't slam them a heart. Love them madly, crave them badly. The thing that's hard is so many girls can't slam them a heart. Oh, stop, hold them so hot. All them I do is say the players and fire. Players, black, woman, non-stop. The whole of them, they have the man, them desire. Hi, spy, what bigger spy? So many girls standing in line. Which one for Jews? Which one for bruise? Hardcore loving either way, down the lose. Love them, man. Yo, Bigger, hold up for a sec. Come out of the booth. Come in here for a sec. What's up, man? I'm just getting warmed Come up. Come in here. Two things. First of all, the last line in that verse, which one to choose, which one to bruise, I'm not really feeling that line. Henry, I don't mean nothing by that. That's just a hot slang in Jamaica right now. In fact, when I say she get bruised up, it means she get the good stuff. Tell him, Bush. Well, Bigger's right. That's what they're saying down in Yard. But Bigger, I get Henry's point. He's thinking big picture. Yeah, he's right. I mean, I know it's the hot expression on the streets right now, but I don't think it'll age too well. Which one to choose, which one to bruise? I mean, you know me. A woman should be loved, caressed. <laughs> Enrique, you're corny as fuck. Bigger. Uh, sorry, corny as heck. What could I say? I'm just old school. No, you're just playing old. <laughs> oh, Bigger, that's Oh, savage. that's good, Bigger. Funny. All right, Henry, I'll change it. Which one for choose, which one for caress? sound better <laughs> oh stop screwing around all right what else you want to chat about yo bush can you give us a few all right i'm gonna get back to my mix when you finish up in here come give it a listen all right bigger, thanks. that joint sounds tight later what bush is- what's up bigger feels like the last few weeks your head's just not in the game what's going I on i got a lot on my mind right now been pretty frustrated dude okay well speak up then and we've been working on this shit for over a year now longer and you never think i'm ready you're always pushing. It's never good enough to shop to the labels. And it's just frustrating as fuck. Watch your language. Sorry. Frustrating as heck. Especially since I know I'm ready. I know I'm good enough. Well, first of all, Bigger, there's a difference between being good and being ready. And what's your rush to sign a record deal? You're still young. You're 17. Bigger, enjoy it while you can. Why you want to grow up so fast? Where are you rushing to? I just need to get the hell out of here. I'm sick of this place. You don't understand, Henry. I just need to get What up. are you running from, Bigger? Tell me. Well, like I told you, my father's in prison. I know. What I didn't tell you is it's for some really fucked up shit. Really, really bad stuff. And being around here just makes me feel dirty. What's that have to do with you? I just don't want to end up anything like him. And getting away from here and everything connected to this place is what I need in my life right now. Getting a record deal... It's my only way out. Wait, wait, wait. Hold up a second, Bigger. You may not realize this, but you've grown up so much in the last year. Not only musically, but you've become a man. The way you've taken responsibility of your life, the way you're working, helping out your mom, whether you get a record deal or not, that's not what's going to define you. You are not and will never be your father. You are Bigger the star, and you are a star. And I'm going to go old school again. Come on. Yeah, this time with some Bob Marley. He said you're running and you're running and you're running away. But you can't run away from yourself. And trust me, Bigger, 
You don't want to run away from yourself. I know you, and you're good to the core. Trust me. I know I told you this already, Henry, but you're the closest thing to a father I've ever had in my life, and I don't want to disappoint you. I don't want to let you down. I appreciate that. And bigger, you've been the closest thing to the son I never wanted. <laughs> Screw you. So don't worry, you won't disappoint me. And remember to get a hit. You have to fit. To hit the chart. You have to smart. Now get back to work. To get a hit, you have to fit. Loosely translated from the Jamaican patois, means to get a hit, you have to be fit. The next line in the song, to hit the chart, you have to smart. You can probably figure that one out. During the first year working with Bigga, the lyrics from the 1985 Black Uhuru song, Fit You Hafi Fit, had become our mantra, our catchphrase around the studio. A reminder to always be alert, aware, attuned to our work and ourselves, physically and mentally. Well, for Bigga, at 6 foot 2 and 250 pounds, being physically fit meant cutting down to just one Philly cheesesteak a day. How do you think he got the name Bigger? But I was more concerned with him staying mentally focused, managing his expectations without stifling his dreams. Always the delicate role of a producer. For me, being fit and being smart meant that I didn't slip, didn't get caught off guard. I was not going to let Bigger become another Brian. I already lost one friend to this music business because I was distracted, took my eye off the ball. I didn't know what to look for back then. Had no idea of the warning signs. Yet, with those scars, came an awareness. And while it was easy to forget that Bigger was still a teenager, it was easy to remember what drew me to working with him to begin with. I had seen something in him that I had seen before in my friend Brian. An inner vulnerability, protected by an unbreakable shield of confidence. That's of course until it breaks. Which it always does. My hope was that Bigger was strong enough on the inside by the time that happened. It had been several joyous years since I had any dealings with record companies or music executives. Most of my contacts were already separated by more than six degrees. In my short hiatus from the inner workings of the industry, this new digital revolution in music wasn't just limited to the way records were recorded. It expanded to the way we had consumed them as well. In 1999... The peer-to-peer digital file sharing service Napster was launched, allowing people to instantly share and download MP3 music files with each other. In no time, it became more popular on American college campuses than bong hits and beer pong, and at its peak, accounted for 70% of all internet traffic. Of course, these corporate geniuses and innovators at the major record labels, they weren't really feeling this whole interweb thing completely failed to recognize the consumer demand to instantly want to download and play songs from the comfort of their living rooms. The labels spent billions of dollars and valuable time fighting the technology on all fronts, allowing for the theft and distribution of free music to become commonplace, accepted by entire generations. By the new millennium, most tweens understood how to download an MP3 file better than the heads of the record companies did. It wasn't until four years later in 2003 that the industry relented and teamed up with Apple to launch iTunes, a paid service that offered downloads at 99 cents a song. But by then it was too late to recover. The proverbial album was out of the jacket sleeve. And today, 20 years later, paid digital downloads account for less than 3% of all music sales. 
The digital music revolution shook the industry to the core. Recording budgets were slashed. Veteran music executives kicked to the curb or forced into early retirement. Replaced with recent college grads, young guns, who understood coding and computers better than they understood music and composition. It was the dawn of a new age in an industry that had already lacked visionaries, outliers, risk-takers, which actually couldn't have worked out better for Biggest Star. You see, when times are a-changing and record companies face obstacles like financial difficulties, budget restraints, widespread layoffs, you can always count on one thing to remain the same. Somehow they always manage to find a few extra dollars lying around to sign a white reggae artist. In Biggest case, it was $50,000 for a development deal with Mercury Records, a division of Universal Music Group. Henrique, it's Nigel from London Mercury Records. Um, we've been listening to the new um, track here, and uh, we're, we're at the office, and we're feeling it, man. It's massive, man. Yeah, a little version of a Black Yuhuru song, Fit You Happy Fit. That's been one of our favorites. It's a big tune around the studio. That kid bigger is something else, I'm telling you that. He looks like a member of a motorcycle gang, but that's what makes him so damn marketable. He does have a different look for a dancehall artist, that's for sure. Listen, I'll be up in New York next month. Let's fly you and Bigger up to Manhattan, uh, shall we? Uh, let's get uh, this contract signed already. We're not ready to commit to, to a full recording deal, but we'll give you a budget to record some tracks and see where it goes. The dancehall thing is hot right now. Yeah, that sounds great. We'll head on up. Absolutely. Bigger will be excited. I think Bigger could be the next Shaggy or Sean Paul. Yeah, we think so too. I'm telling you that. Shaggy, Sean Paul. Cheers. And send my best to bigger. In 1981, the year Bob Marley, king of reggae, lost his battle with cancer, his worldwide popularity was just reaching new heights. However, in Jamaica, the land of his birth, a new king had already been crowned. King Yellowman, the king of the dancehall. Born in the Kingston tenements, with the genetic disorder of albinism, he was abandoned by his mother, left to die in a shopping bag in a trash can when he was found by the garbage collector who brought the baby to an orphanage. That child, Denroy Foster, would miraculously survive and later move to the famed Alpha Boy School in central Kingston, where he was raised by nuns, given vocational training and music lessons that would change his life. King Yellow would rise to fame by popularizing the Jamaican DJ style known as toasting, an essential part of the dancehall brand. With his electrifying performances and risque, sexualized lyrics, he became one of the genre's earliest and most effective musical ambassadors. Throughout the 80s and 90s, dancehall became the music of choice at Jamaican parties, clubs, and street dances, defined by electronic beats, and rhythm tracks driven by drums and synthesizers, which is what differentiated it from its cousin reggae that relied on live instruments and musicians. Dancehall music and culture quickly traveled from the ghettos of Kingston to dance floors across the globe. Fueled by a new generation of youth that enjoyed the slack lyrics about sex, guns, and good times, all while dancing to the music's infectious, up-tempo grooves. But perhaps the most important influential ingredient that contributed to dancehall becoming a global phenomenon was the versatile and eccentric rasta of ghetto artists that fronted the music. High caliber, fast rhyming, 
Lyrically provocative DJs and MCs. Yellow Man, Papa San, Stitchy. Beanie Man, Bounty Killer, Ninja Man. Supercat, Tiger, Shabaranks. Ghetto superstars that captured the imagination of the world and the attention of the music industry. However, there was trouble in paradise. These same hardcore DJs quickly gained a reputation with the labels as being problematic, belligerent, lacking discipline, and difficult to deal with, which was actually unfair and even biased, considering that same behavior exhibited by their white counterparts was considered eccentric and defiant. Nonetheless, a death blow to dance hall was dealt in March of 1993, when double Grammy winner Shaba Ranks went on BBC television defending fellow Jamaican DJ Buju Banton's homophobic lyrics on his song Boom Bye Bye. A negative light was cast on dancehall. It was labeled murder music. Sony Records dropped Shaba. Jamaican artists were boycotted. Venues picketed. The labels felt burned, so they retreated, initiated a shadow ban on dancehall, refusing to sign artists that were perceived as unpredictable, unfiltered, uneducated. In other words, they stopped signing ghetto artists. Something had to change. There was too much money at stake. Dancehall needed a new image. A reboot. And in 1995, Dancehall 2.0 debuted when the deep raspy baritone Orville Burrell, known as Shaggy, scored a hit with his mid-tempo club banger, Mr. Boombastic. With its catchy hook and million-dollar sample from the Marvin Gaye song, Let's Get It On, it went straight to number one on the Billboard R&B charts. The recording industry finally found its answer. In contrast to Dancehall's last crossover star, the X-rated Shaba Ranks, who was teased as a child for having dark skin and African features, Shaggy was a light-skinned, clean-cut former Marine. Wow, talk about discipline. And while Shaba was known for sneering at audiences with his trademark screw face, Shaggy greeted crowds with his warm million-dollar movie star smile. His music deemed by many in Jamaica as dancehall light, with lyrics less threatening than the standard DJ fare. But it was more relatable to non-Jamaican crowds. And even his name Shaggy seemed innocent enough. Taken from the Saturday morning cartoon Scooby-Doo. Mr. Lover Lover She called me Mr. Bombastic Silly Fantastic Dancehall had a new face and a new image, but it didn't happen overnight, and it wasn't by accident. I was living and working in Kingston at the time, was at the club the very night that Mr. Boombastic was premiered. I watched that song as it climbed the charts, first in Jamaica, and after gaining credibility in Yard, work its way up to become an international hit. There were rumors, rumblings at the time, from many within dancehall circles, that Shaggy was an industry plant, part of a larger, well-orchestrated plot to hijack the dancehall movement, sanitize it, surgically remove the raw ghetto elements, and replace them with more marketable, commercially viable singers and DJs that they could easily work with, easily control. You see, Jamaica's elites, the same dozen or so powerful families that ruled the islands for centuries, felt that they earned deserve to profit off any commodity that's produced or manufactured on their island. And that included reggae and dancehall. So word on the street was they created a cabal, set up a system of gatekeeping that would control the flow of music and musicians from Jamaica to the rest of the world, promote those artists 
that they deemed better to represent Jamaican music and culture. These are the same elites that once cursed Bob Marley as a ganja-smoking rebel from the ghetto until he died, then did their best to capitalize off his name and image to promote their island. I admit that these were just rumors. Conspiracy theories floated on street corners and in recording studios. That was until Dancehall's next breakthrough star emerged as an international chart topper. Then the rumors were taken a little more seriously. You see, despite the popularity and consistent hitmakers that rose from the ghettos and slums of Kingston, the island's next crossover superstar would actually be an educated uptown water polo player that came from one of Jamaica's oldest and most influential families. Sean Paul Henriquez would later drop his family name to help his street credibility. Mimicking the style of his dancehall hero Supercat, he quickly became the darling of the Jamaican media, produced, managed, handled by powerful Jamaican industry insiders. The light-skinned, good-looking upper-class youth knew how to play the game like a champ. 20 years later, he's still the champ. Last year, Sean Paul was Jamaica's most streamed artist on the internet. And for those who believed in the great dancehall conspiracy, the uptown takeover was now complete. And while I dabbled in dancehall over the years, I certainly wasn't one of its biggest fans or ardent supporters. But I was aware of this battle that was occurring for the soul of dancehall. A struggle between uptown and downtown. But mostly from the sidelines. Never had much skin in the game. But now, I had 250 pounds of biggest star, running on the field like a freight train. And for us, the choice was easy. Bigger and I were ready to sign a major deal ready to make a crossover record, ready to play the game. But we decided together we were not going to sell out dancehall or ghetto culture in the process. We would make our record on our own terms, in our own time. And as far as we were concerned, there was only one place to do it. So, um, moving on, guys. I was telling Henry Kay, uh, we have plans to send you guys uh, over to Stockholm, Sweden, to work with Max Martin. He's the producer behind the supergroup Ace of Bass. And now his production team is working on the uh, Backstreet Boys now. The guy's a hitmaker. You really can't lose on this one. Well, Nigel, no disrespect, but that's some pussy shit. Bigger language. Sorry, whack-ass shit. That's not the kind of music that I want to make. Tell him, Henry. Tell him what we were talking about. Yes, Nigel. Me and Bigger, we're on the same page. Yeah, we appreciate the opportunity. Everything you're doing. But we need to do this project in Jamaica. We just want it to be authentic. You know, we want to support Jamaican musicians and artists. Studios. It's got to be dance hall to the core. Yeah. I want to go down to Jamaica. Down to Yard to record. I ain't gonna get no musical vibes recording dancehall record in Sweden. No weed. Freezing my ass off in the middle of nowhere. Hey, the show little class. I need to work on my album in Kingston. Soak up some Jamaican vibes. Good dancehall rhythms. A nice gal and ganja around the studio. And he's got something he wants to prove. You know, he wants to show them that he earned this deal. And not because of his look or color. You know? It's important to us. I have to throw that one by um, the upper heads. We believe in Bigger and we have a vision for him. So I don't think it's a deal breaker. If you want to go to Jamaica to uh, record, uh, that's up to you guys. Um, but, but remember, you only get one chance. I know what it takes to tear up the jam down scene. 
Bigger, wake up. You gotta pack your bags. We are going to Kingston. So, Henry, I guess I'm finally ready. Ready for what, Bigger? Ready for my record deal. It's just a development deal, nothing more. We're about to take a walk down a very, very long road. And we just got a little chump change to buy shoes for the walk. So, don't get too excited. And by the way, what size do you wear? <laughs> Big enough to mash up the music business. And Bigger, remember, to get a hit. Coffee fit. To hit the chart. Coffee smart.